and tell Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. We want to welcome you to our special program series. The date is Tuesday, September 24th, and we're going to continue our discussion, part two, on America's game, America's pastime baseball. And naturally, no one can do it better than our speaker, Mr. Ira Vistel. Ira, the telephone is yours, and we'll all be listening. <laughs> Thank you very much, Bob. Um, I want to go back a little bit from where we finished two months ago. We got into the 30s, but I really want to go back to the 20s because a lot of things changed beginning with about 1918. Um, so I'm going to go back a little bit. Um, one thing that changed was the arrival in 1914 in the American League of a young man from Baltimore, Maryland, whose name was George Herman Ruth. Uh, he was signed at the age of 18 out of the uh, orphanage industrial school in Baltimore by the Orioles owner, uh, minor league team, Jack Dunn, of the minor league Baltimore Orioles. And uh, Dunn realized that this big guy, six feet two, 200-something pounds, very much bigger than the ordinary player of, the, of that time, uh, it was something special. And he told his other players, his older guys, don't you mess around with this guy. He's going to be a great player, and I don't want any interference with him. So the other guys cynically said, well, you know, we can't mess around with Jack Dunn's babe. And that's how he came to be known as Babe Ruth. He was a terrific player. Uh, he started out as a pitcher, and in 1914, he pitched for the Orioles and then was sold to the Boston Red Sox, the American League team, and became uh, the starting pitcher, a starting pitcher for the Red Sox in 1914. He's a left-hander all the way, through and batted left-handed, strong, extremely, extremely talented, and a what would you say, kind of a wild liver. Uh, they didn't need any fooling around with, with Babe because the Babe did all the fooling around he wanted to do and did it for the rest of his life. It was life. It was life. Did something happen there? Are we still going? Yep, everything's just fine. Go ahead. All right. So... Uh, Ruth was a fixture on the Boston pitching staff, and in 1916, he helped pitch the Red Sox to the World Series, where they beat the Brooklyn Dodgers in the World Series, and Ruth pitched something like, oh, I can't, 30-some-odd consecutive shot-out innings in World Series play, which remained the record for another 40 years or so until Whitey Ford broke it. So Babe Ruth was quite a pitcher. And then in 1917, the World War I came to America, and baseball was threatened with a shutdown by the uh, super patriots. Uh, Congress passed a work-or-fight ordinance, which meant that either you got a defense job or you could get drafted. And a number of players chose to take defense jobs. 
Phil was Joe Jackson, who was the great left-handed hitter, uh, took a defense job and didn't play in the 1917 season. Meanwhile, the owners were uh, hurting because they were not playing, getting as many fans to see the games, and they were worried what would happen in 1918. So before the 1918 season started, they agreed to cut the season short, play only 140 games instead of 154, and end the season on Labor Day. Well, Babe Ruth came back in 1918 to pitch, and... While he was also pitching, uh, the new general manager of the Red Sox, a man named Ed Barrow, saw Ruth developing as a monster talent, not just a great pitcher, but Ruth could hit the ball probably harder and further than anybody else alive at that time. And Barrow decided to maneuver Ruth into both uh, pitching and pinch hitting. When he wasn't pitching, he would he, he could pinch hit or sometimes even play. And by 1918, the Red Sox won the pennant again and went to the World Series against the Chicago Cubs. That was a very peculiar World Series. First of all, it was the first year that the second, third, and fourth place teams got money from the World Series shares. And the teams who were in the World Series, the players who were actually playing the World Series, didn't like sharing the money one bit. And there was a threatened strike before the first game of the World Series. And the president of the American League, Dan Johnson, came down to uh, moderate the dispute and try to get the players to play. Well, Dan Johnson was... um, shall we say, having had a nice liquid lunch that day, and he was kind of flying high. (laughs) When he started talking to the players, Harry Hooper from the Red Sox and Les Mann, who was the player representative of the Cubs, looked at each other. They said, what can we do? This guy is is higher than a kite. We can't negotiate anything with him. Come on, let's just play the game. So they did play the games, and the Red Sox beat the Cubs in the World Series, um, that was not an unusual experience for the Cubs because uh, they've lost more World Series, I think, than any other team. I mean, they've lost the World Series at least nine times, if I can remember. Anyway, Ruth and company won that, won that series. However, there were some nasty rumors flowing around about the possibility that maybe gamblers had gotten to some of the players in that World Series. Now, gambling was a big problem in baseball at this time. Remember that sports betting is a rather uh, a new thing on anything except horse racing. And horse racing remained popular because it was a sport that gamblers could participate in. But now that baseball was getting a national following and becoming much more important, a lot of money began to be bet on baseball games. And it was known it was known that uh, some players would occasionally, uh, maybe more often, take money from gamblers and, uh, shall we say, all through the outcome of the game. And there were rumors about that 1918 World Series. Now, remember where it was played. The American League team was the Boston Red Sox, and the National League team was the Chicago Cubs. 
Okay. The series went off. Red Sox won it. The war ended in November 1918. The players all came back from the war. And 1919 looked to be, uh, to the owners anyway, looked to be questionable. They weren't sure that all the fans would come back. Well, the fans did come back, and 1919 turned out to be a very big year. The White Sox players, who had been in the service, including Joe Jackson, came back, and the Chicago team, the White Sox, uh, won the American League pennant. It was a tough pennant race, though, because Detroit and Cleveland were both in it until the very end of the season. But Chicago won and went up against the Cincinnati Reds, an underdog winner in the National League. Nobody thought Cincinnati had a chance against the White Sox. The Chicago team had won the 1917 World Series and had the biggest stars in the game, including Joe Jackson and pitchers Eddie Sycott and Lefty Williams and Red Faber, and they had Eddie Collins, a terrific second baseman, one of the all-time great players. They had uh, Buck Weaver at third base, the best third baseman of his time. They had a great catcher in Ray, uh, Ray Schalk. Uh, and they were owned by Charles Comiskey, one of the original founders of the American League, and a guy who had uh, become a baseball player way back in the 1870s when he happened to drive his father's brick wagon past the ballpark one day and stopped and watched the, watched the players play and figured, well, I can do that. <laughs> and he became a ball player. And it was Charles Comiskey playing first base who evolved the modern strategy of having the first baseman play away from the base, especially when nobody was on, so that he could cover more ground and be more of a help defensively in the infield rather than being tethered to first base as uh, had always been the case before. So Charles Comiskey was a, a real veteran of the game. However, one thing he was was open-handed. Mr. Comiskey believed in uh, treating the reporters to a good time, and he believed in uh, hobnobbing with celebrities and getting the support from the big players in town. But he didn't like paying his own players very much. Eddie Collins had been acquired from Connie Mack in the Philadelphia A's, and Collins had a salary of $15,000 a year, which in 1919 was very good money. But some of, of Comiskey's own players, including the great Joe Jackson, were getting paid a third as much as Eddie Collins was getting. And Comiskey was such a skinflint that he refused to launder the players' uniforms between games. So some of the time, the White Sox played in dirty uniforms. You think the players liked that? Not a lot. And during the course of the year, uh, it came out many years later that Chick Gandall, the Chicago first baseman, who had been a professional boxer, and I knew a lot of things about people in the underworld and knew a lot of gamblers, had made contact with a guy named Sport Sullivan, Joseph Sport Sullivan, who was a gambler in, guess where, Boston, Massachusetts. And while the White Sox were on a trip to Boston, Chick Gandall and Sport Sullivan put their heads together. 
And the way it has been reported, nobody can prove this, because I don't know if there's any documentation, but uh, I can give you the source, and I will in just a moment. Uh, Gandrel and Sullivan discussed the idea of having the White Sox players take money from the gamblers to give Cincinnati the World Series. And the gamblers would make a killing because, of course, the odds were heavily in favor of Chicago. Well, uh, the whole thing was kind of an awkward mess. Uh, the fix was not very well organized, and it was not very well carried out. Some of the players were in it. Some of them were not in it. Collins and Chalk and Faber, notably, would have nothing to do with it, didn't even know about it. But uh, Gandel and the center fielder Felsch and the shortstop Risberg and the two pitchers, Colin, uh, Cycott, rather, and uh, Williams were in on the fix. Joe Jackson and Buck Weaver were contacted. Weaver knew about it but didn't tell anybody and didn't go along with it, told him he wasn't interested in the fix. But he didn't report it. Jackson who was illiterate and was a southern, uh, you know, a southern uh, mill hand who had virtually no education, couldn't read or write. Uh, they cheated him when he, when he um, made up his contract. Uh, he usually had his wife read everything before he signed anything with his ex. Well, in this case, they had the team um, manager go down and sign Jackson to a contract while his wife was not present. And they assured Jackson that it was it was all just the way he wanted it, and they wrote it up the way they wanted it. And Jackson signed the contract. Well, that shows you what uh, kind of problems Lewis Joe had. He was the greatest hitter of his time, and Babe Ruth, who was very much aware of Jackson, they were in the same league. Ruth was pitching to Joe Jackson. Ruth thought Jackson was the greatest hitter in the world and copied his own stance after she was Joe Jackson. Well, he did something right when he did that. She was Joe Jackson was all, by all, no question, the greatest player not in the Hall of Fame. By far. Uh, tremendous hitter. The only reason he didn't win a batting title one year, he hit 408. Ty Cobb hit 420, <laughs> so he didn't win the batting title. But Jackson was a terrific outfielder, a powerful, um, fast, great hitter, and just a great player. Comes the World Series, and the Sox somehow lose the first game. Sycott uh, threw the ball away in a couple of bad innings. And in the second game, they lose again with Williams pitching. Fader was hurt and couldn't pitch. So they only had the two left-handers, Sycott uh, and Williams, and a young right-hander who was a semi-pro from Texas who had joined the team, Dickie Kerr. Uh, nobody thought Dickie Kerr had anything special to offer, but he went out and won the third game. And this was one of the most remarkable games of all time because Dickie Kerr pitched a shutout and one for a team that was trying to lose. Well, then uh, Sycott and Williams both lost again. Uh, this series, however, was not four out of seven. It was five out of nine. And from 1919 through 1922 or 23, they played five out of nine. 
so as to make more money so that they could cut the second, third, and fourth place teams in on it. So that's why the series was extended to five games out of nine. Well, meanwhile, the players were asking the gamblers, where's our money? Sycott got his $10,000. Jackson was given a dirty envelope with $5,000 in it. He said he didn't want it. He said, I, I don't know who to give it back to. So, so he kept it. He didn't play dishonestly. He only hit 375 in that World Series. Uh, he played honestly, but he did know of the fix, and he did actually take some money, although he didn't spend it. He just kept it. <laughs> Julius Joe was a little confused in a number of ways. Uh, so the series comes down now to games four. Kerr won game four. Uh, game five, Sycott, who was angry because the players weren't getting paid, turned and, and won the game, pitched to win, and the series came down now to a series to a four to three, four games to three. The fifth game, the whether well, it's the uh, what, eighth game, the eighth game, going to be played in Chicago. The night before the game, a strange man comes up to um, Lefty Williams, Claude Williams, and says to Lefty, "You know, you're pitching tomorrow, right, Lefty?" And Lefty says, "Yeah." And this uh, fellow says, oh, you're going to lose tomorrow. You're going to lose in the first inning. You're going to make sure you lose in the first inning or something's going to happen to your wife and you won't like it at all. What do you, what do, you do if you're Lefty Williams? He went out and walked about six guys in the first inning and the Reds won the game easily, 10-6, to 10-5, and won the World Series. Well, the stink was felt right at the moment. Ring Larger, a great writer, great sports writer, and later, I think, a great American story writer. Uh, never wrote a novel, but was a terrific short story writer. Some of his stuff is so good, you know, it just demands to be read. Uh, I don't know how many people ever read Ring Larger anymore, but they certainly should because he's, he's a terrific writer. Anyway, Lardner, on the train back to Chicago, uh, you know, after one of those games, uh, first two, goes through the uh, sleeping cars, stinging at the top of his voice, I'm forever blowing ball game, pretty ball games in the air. He knew the fix was in. Uh, in this press box, Chris <laughs> Matthewson, the former great pitcher with the Giants, and the uh, sports writer uh, were sitting together, and I think you saw this. If you saw yeah. the movie Eight Men Out, you saw this thing. Matthewson and the sports writer are sitting there looking at each other and marking down every play they thought was suspicious. And there were enough that were very suspicious. So that the manager of the White Sox realized that his team was not playing, something was wrong. There's a big problem. What happens if Charles Comiskey uh, is told that his team is lying down he's going to have to break up his team. He's going to see his players banned from the game, and he's going to lose a fortune. So he tried to brazen it out. He didn't want to know. His, his manager wanted to tell him. He didn't want to know. He claimed he wanted to know, and he offered a reward for information to anybody who could prove the fix. But when somebody showed up who could prove the fix, Kaminsky dismissed him. 
The somebody was another player, a second baseman from St. Louis, whose name was Joe Gideon, uh, who knew uh, about the fix because he'd heard some of the other people talking about it. And he went to Comiskey and asked for the 10000 bucks. And Comiskey heard his story and said, ah, get out of here, you know. So the fix went on, and it wasn't discovered. I'm sorry, what? I'm sorry? Did I just go on? The fix wasn't discovered. It, wasn't, it didn't become public until the next fall when the Sox were in another pennant race, throwing games here and there. But uh, they still hung in the race, and with about, I think, three games to go, they were like a game out of first place when the story broke and the players were suspended. At this point, it's a national scandal. The World Series was fixed. How can this be? You know, uh, Americans have a wonderful way of wanting to believe that everything is good, even when it's clear that it isn't. And a great many people were terribly shocked at the idea that gamblers got it to the World Series and fixed it. Well, the players went on trial for conspiracy, but uh, this was Chicago politics in the 1920s, and the transcripts of their confessions disappeared for about the next 75 years when they were finally discovered again. Uh, Comiskey, of course, had everything at stake in keeping the players um, in a capable playing. So whether he had something to do with the disappearance of the, of the confessions, I don't know. Nobody does. But at any rate, this national scandal threatened to hurt baseball badly, even though players were eventually found not guilty of conspiracy. The, mixed up with this story is the story of how baseball came to have two leagues of eight teams each with a single commissioner. Up until the 1919 season, baseball had been run by a three-man commission. Not one commissioner, but three people. President of the National League, President of the American League, and a third commissioner. And it was clear during the 1919 scandal that this was not an appropriate way to run the game. There had to be somebody with real authority at the top. The character who was chosen to be the commissioner was chosen by a group of uh, American League owners and a partial group from the National League. And that group called themselves the National Commission. They came to go to Judge Landis, a federal judge who had made his name uh, in the judiciary by finding the Standard Oil Company God knows how many million dollars for breaking the monopoly laws. He also handled a case involving baseball, uh, involving the Federal League, a would-be rival to the two major leagues in 1916, uh, and he moved against the Federal League and in favor of the owners of the American and National Leagues. So there came the time to choose a single commissioner and Judge Kennesaw Mountain Landis was hired as the commissioner. When they hired him, they told him he had whatever powers necessary to run the game on a clean basis. 
And Judge Landis, being a federal judge and being used to exerting authority, exerted his. When the players were found not guilty, he simply banned them from the game for life. Just or unjust, his job was to clean up the game and make the fans believe it again. And he did it by making the players the scapegoats. Nothing was done to Comiskey or to Johnson or to any of the other authorities who were mixed up in this thing. Uh, at one point, Johnson thought he was going to be the next boss because he had support from five National League owners. And they called him the Loyal Five. Johnson had started out in the National League at Cincinnati, so uh, he was a National League guy before he became an American League guy. Anyway, Johnson lost out. Landis was named the new commissioner, and two things happened. The ban of the 1920 uh, guilty, not, guilty or not guilty players and Babe Ruth. Ruth, at the end of the 1919 season, Babe Ruth was purchased, his contract was purchased from the Red Sox by the New York Yankees. Up until this time, the Yankees had never been a very successful franchise. They had moved to New York in 1904 as the New York Highlanders because they played in a ballpark on the highest point of Manhattan Island, which is way up in Washington Heights in the north, uh, northwest quarter of the island. Uh, but they had never been very successful. But they were owned by a very wealthy man, uh, Jake Rupert, who owned a brewery, and his associates, uh, Phil Houston and others. Anyway, Rupert hired as his general manager Ed Barrow, the man who had seen Ruth and turned him into a part-time hitter in Boston. And in 1919, when Ruth was in his last year in Boston and Barrow was in his last year in Boston, Ruth played the outfield and only pitched occasionally. And Ruth hit 29 home runs, which was by far more than anybody had ever hit in the season before. A guy named Roger Connor had once hit 24, uh, but Ruth hit 29, and it was clear to everybody that this man was changing the game. Up until 1919, up until Babe Ruth, the game was played one run at a time. You would sacrifice, you'd punt, you'd hit and run. Uh, you'd try to score one run at a time because... Uh, you didn't have the long ball threat. You didn't have hitting home runs. I think one year uh, the league leader had six home runs for the season, 154 games. Well, Ruth came on the scene, and Barrow was wise enough to see what Ruth meant. And when Barrow brought Ruth to New York, it cost Rupert $125,000 in cash plus a large loan to Harry Frazee, who owned the Boston Red Sox. This is one reason why the Red Sox have hated the Yankees, despised the Yankees, ever since 1920, because Harry Frazee sold Babe Ruth. Not for players, for money. Why did Frazee want the money? Because in his spare time, he was a Broadway producer, and he had a show he wanted to put on, and he didn't have the money to put it on. The sale of Ruth plus the loan gave him money to stage his show a couple of years later. The show was called, uh, oh, I can't remember the name of the show, but the hit song in the show was T for Two, 
and it made tremendous money. Uh, I should remember the show, but uh, I don't for the moment. Anyway, so that's what Harry Frizee did with the money he, he got for Babe Ruth. Meanwhile, Ruth went to New York, the big market, and began hitting home runs like crazy. In 1920, his first year with the Yankees, he hit, I think, 51. And the next year, 1921, he hit 59 home runs, which was almost double. It was more than double and what anybody had ever hit before in his own 29 with the Red Sox. Uh, and then he had 51 and 59 in two seasons. Everybody was talking about Babe Ruth. And, of course, the Yankees won the 1921 pennant. They lost the World Series to the rivals, the Giants, and they lost the next year to the Giants. But in the meantime, Barrow and Rupert arranged for the Yankees to build their own ballpark. They were tenants of the Giants for those first couple of years. But in 1923, they opened Yankee Stadium. And if you know anything about the original Yankee Stadium, you will remember its dimensions. The right field foul line was 296 feet from the plate. Right field deep, the uh, regular wall in right field was 340 feet from the home plate. In center field, it was 457 feet from the home plate. Left center field was 461 feet from home plate. Left field proper was 400 feet. And the left field foul line was 301. Do those dimensions sound a little crooked to you? Guess what? Babe Ruth was a left-handed hitter. And he had a target to swing at. Right field in New York was no deeper than 340 feet, and in less than that down the foul line. And here's Ruth, this powerful left-handed slugger, playing in a ballpark built to order for a powerful left-handed slugger. While meanwhile, all the right-handed hitters in the league were stymied by that 460-foot center field and 450-foot left center field. Oh, gosh, it was just highway robbery. So ever since then, beginning in 1923 and ending only in the last couple of years, the New York Yankees have always specialized in left-handed power hitters and right-handed hitters who could hit the ball to the right field. And it resulted in the Yankee dynasty. Up until 1921, the Yankees have never won a pennant. Between 1921 and the present, they have won 29... World Series and 40 pennants more. <laughs> so um, this goes to show you uh, how you can manipulate things in, uh, in a business. And baseball is a business. That's uh, no doubt about that. One reason why Ruth was so important was because everybody in the country knew who Babe Ruth was. Everybody wanted to follow Babe Ruth's exploits. And everybody wanted to see Babe Ruth play. And during the winter, Babe Ruth and his teammates would barnstorm, go you know, play all around the country for extra money. Ruth was paid a, at the maximum $80,000 a year. Well, $80,000 a year doesn't sound like a lot today, but in 1925 or 26 or so, that was probably uh, all about the uh, budget of a, a good-sized small city for the year. Uh, way, way more than anybody else had ever made. 
And also, he was a terrific bargain at 80,000 a year. So the games changed. Instead of being an inside game, playing for one run at a time, all of a sudden, the big splurge, the home run ball, the glamour home run, three-run home run, bases loaded home run, um, the game was completely changed. The emphasis was suddenly uh, not on hit-and-run baseball, base-stealing, line drives. The emphasis is on home runs, long ball hitting, power. And it caught on, as you can imagine, like wildfire with the fans. Babe Ruth saved baseball in the sense that he was the great attraction at the very moment when baseball needed a great attraction. Following the scandal uh, in 1918, the near scandal, and the, the, the true scandal in 1919, and then the uh, banning of the five, let's see, the eight Chicago players, uh, including the greatest player of the times, uh, Joe Jackson. They needed a Babe Ruth, and Babe Ruth was there when they needed him. All right. 20s were known in America as the Roaring 20s, the Roaring 20s. It was the time when people had some money after World War I, and they enjoyed spending it. They wanted to have fun. They were tired of being, uh, you know, crusading for uh, freedom in Europe. They didn't want to fight. They wanted to play. And this is the period we call today the uh, uh, the Roaring Twenties. Uh, when anything goes, it was the period of the Great Gatsby. If anybody knows the movie, you saw the Baz Luhrmann movie, terrific movie of the, of the 20s. Uh, in that movie, one of the characters, Meyer Wolfsheim, is based on Arnold Rothstein, who was the New York gambler who took over the fix. He didn't start the fix, but he took over the management of it, and he made it work because he didn't bet game by game. He was smart enough to know that the players might not, uh, you know, might not behave as Sycott didn't, for example, in that fifth game, uh, if they didn't get paid. Rothstein bet on the series as a whole, and it is, there's very little doubt that the word from this mysterious guy who got to Lefty Williams came from New York, from our Rothstein. Rothstein was shot to death in a poker game uh, at the end of the 20s, and the police got to him while he was still alive, and they said, who did it? Who did it, Arnold? And he wouldn't tell. He kept the code to his own death. He refused to tell who shot him. He knew who it was, of course, but he refused to, to tell. One of the most fascinating characters in American history, and certainly one of the worst, worst people this country has ever uh, spawned, Arnold Rothstein. Okay, this brings us up to 1929. What happened in the fall of 1929? Well, you should know the answer to that. It was October 1929 when the stock market crashed. The whole, house, the whole house of cards that had been the American economy for the last four or five years collapsed all at once. What had happened was uh, that the economic condition of the whole world had been affected by World War I by the huge reparations that Germany was being told to pay, uh, which Germany could not pay, 
Germany's economy was ruined. The economies of other countries were ruined. Great Britain's economy went under in 1925 when there was a general strike. And as early as 1922, the economy in Japan was so bad that Japan began its attempt to conquer Asia for its own benefit. The Greater East Asia co-prosperity sphere, that meant the Japanese Empire. And Japan invaded Manchuria as early as 1922. World War I ended in October, November 1918, and World War II really began when Japan invaded Manchuria just four years later. It wasn't the official beginning of World War II. That took another 17 years. But the beginnings were actually then. Uh, the beginning of World War II in Europe was the collapse of the German economy. Germany had not, uh, you know, not been an outright defeated power. It was an armistice, and then the Adolf Hitler played out in this to come to power himself. He tried it during the late 20s and got sent to jail for it, but in 1933 he won out with his diatribes against anybody who stabbed Germany in the back. Germany didn't lose the war, and you know, all that. Well, uh, the Allies made it possible for that to happen by imposing such a disastrous economy on Germany that uh, the German economy collapsed. Remember the stories about if you went out to buy a loaf of bread in the morning, you better take uh, every mark you have because by the afternoon the price had gone up. Uh, inflation was running 1,000% at a time. Uh, nobody, nobody could keep up with it. It was, it was just a total disaster. And those were the origins of World War II. So meanwhile, the depression hit the United States with the fall of the stock market. It didn't cause the loss of the depression, but what it did do was to point out that everything wasn't all so healthy. And a lot of people lost a lot of money in a, in a short amount of time. There were huge losses. People had put money into the market that they didn't have. They borrowed it. It was called margin. And you paid your, your margin uh, you would pay as little as 10% of the amount of the price of the stock you were buying. And the broker put up the rest of it. You know, he financed you. Well, when the market begins to tumble, the broker wants his money back. You know, he's, he doesn't uh, gain anything if the market goes down. He's the one who's losing the money. So he demands you put up more margin. It's your stock. You bought it. You've got to pay for it. And people who didn't have the money began jumping out of windows. People woke up, uh, went, to be, went to sleep rich one night and woke up the next morning paupers. Uh, and that literally happened. If you go to French Lick, Indiana, there's a famous hotel there called French Lick Springs Hotel. And uh, next door to it is a, another big one called the West Baden Hotel. That's exactly what happened in that, those hotels. The millionaires would come to gamble there, and the next morning they'd find out that they were wiped out by the stock market crash. So uh, that happened, uh, you know, it really happened. So as the uh, economy began to go bad, it started in 1920, in the 29, 1930, uh, there was a slowdown. 31 got worse than that. 32 got worse than that. And when the election in 1932 was held, and uh, 
November 1932, Franklin Roosevelt was elected president of the United States in a massive reconfiguration of the American political system, which brought to power uh, the Democratic Party, which had only held the presidency for a total of 16 years since the end of the Civil War. Uh, and that changed completely with the depression. Well, what happens during a depression to uh, an industry like baseball, which depends on people's spending, uh, which is not necessary. It's, it's uh, spending for pleasure. What happens? People stop coming to the games. How do you get people to come back to the games? Well, one of the things they decided to do as early as 1929-30 was to juice up the ball. If one Babe Ruth is great, how about a whole two leagues full of Babe Ruths? Everybody's hitting home runs, hitting like crazy. And that tied into the Depression. Another thing that uh, was tied in was the fact that in 1920, when Ruth uh, began to be prominent, the owners changed the rules, taking away from the pitchers the ability to use the emery ball, the spit ball, or the shine ball, all doctoring the ball, because doctoring the ball made it harder for the hitters to hit. And nobody wanted to see Babe Ruth not hit. So they changed the rules. They also changed another rule. Instead of playing with dirty balls, which they had done ever since the game began, you played one ball. Uh, if, you know, if, if the ball went into the stands, the people threw it back and you went out playing with it. They started bringing in fresh baseballs. Well, what's easier to hit? A brand new, pure, white-looking ball or an old, dirty-looking ball which softened up by being, by being swung at and hit a number of times? So it's no wonder that beginning with 1920 in Babe Ruth, hitting took over what had been a pitcher's sport. Pitchers dominated the first uh, 20 years of the 20th century. Hitters dominated especially the, the next 20 years, 1920 to 1940. And it came to a head in 1933. Uh, in 1930, I got some statistics here that I looked up. Very interesting statistics. In 1930, the Philadelphia Phillies, as a team, as a team, I, you know, team batting average, was 315. 315 for the team, including the pitching staff, would you believe? No other National League team hit less than 281. And six teams in the National League hit over 300 as a team. Unbelievable. Where did the Phillies finish with their 315-team batting average? Dead last. 48 games out of first place. They had one of the worst defensive teams in the history of the game. And they had an absolutely horrible pitching staff. The ace was fidgety Phil Collins, who won about 15 games or 16 games, and had an earn-run average of close to five. And he was the only guy on the team who had an earn-run average of less than five. Uh, the 15 Phillies are a classic example of how not to win in baseball. <laughs> have no defense, have no pitching, and it doesn't matter how much you hit. Um, they had a, uh, one of their players hit 393, I think it was, 
the, every man in the starting lineup at 300. So what? They finished last, dead last. So the 30s became an era of hitting, dominant hitting. And the frantic part of it calmed down after the 1935, 36 or so seasons. But, uh, and there's a new, a new great hero has to appear. Um, Ruth stopped playing in 1934, retired. Uh, by that time, he was old and fat. But just two years later, the New York Yankees signed a young player from San Francisco who had been playing in the Pacific Coast League. His name was Joe DiMaggio. And he became the next great star in New York. The ancestors, Bruce, Ruth was his ancestor, and he was uh, the Ruth's follower as the guy who stirred the drink and made everything happen in New York. And DiMaggio played on four straight Yankee pennant winners between 1939 and 1942. Uh, they won the pennant every year. They won the World Series every year except 42. Uh, and, you know, the, the Yankee dominance didn't, he may have begun with Babe Ruth, but it didn't end with Babe Ruth. Okay. Now, meanwhile, money is tough to come, out, come by in the, in the 30s. Uh, and in the, it's tough for owners to come by if they didn't have money. Now, the St. Louis Cardinals are one of those teams who had no money. Their owners didn't have any uh, any big business interests outside, but the Cardinals were um, taken over by Branch Rickey. Now we all know of who Mr. Rickey was today because of his tremendous accomplishments over the years, which we'll come to. But when Rickey came to St. Louis, St. Louis had never won a pennant. They'd been in the National League for twenty some odd years. Never won a pennant, usually finished at the bottom of the league. But Mr. Rickey had a brilliant brain. Uh, he had gone to law school, he had come graduate of the University of Michigan, been a major league catcher, still holds a record of, I think, three pass balls in one inning in a major league game. Uh, he was not much of a player, but he had a fabulous eye for spotting and developing talent. And he came up with an idea out of his head. Instead of buying players from minor league teams, which were developing them, and then you, the major league teams would come by and uh, buy the player from the minor league owner, paying, a, you know, paying the minor league owner some money for having developed the player. Ricky started signing players out of high school. And then he bought minor league franchises to stock them, on, to put them on. In short... He invented the farm system. The idea was to sign players when they weren't much worth, you know, we didn't have much worth on the open market. A uh, farm boy off the, off, the, you know, the, off the back 40, you could sign for maybe 100 bucks. Uh, to pay for a uh, finished player, it might cost you 10000 Well, Ricky didn't have 10000 but for uh, $10,000, he could sign, what, a 1,000 players at $100 each? So that's how he developed the farm system. He had a method, but there was no madness in it. He found a way to develop players without spending money. And what's more, 
he could sell the players who he realized weren't going to be good enough, but who looked good, he could sell them to other teams. And since he was smarter than all the other owners, and since he was uh, a tremendous salesman, uh, <laughs> there are stories about how Ricky could mesmerize people. Bill Veck, who was a young man working in uh, the Chicago Cubs office during the 20s, watched Ricky at work on the Cubs uh, management, uh, Pants Rowland and uh, P.K. Wrigley, the owner. Uh, <laughs> he said later it was like watching a snake mesmerize its prey into submission. <laughs> Mr. Ricky um, hired all these young players. The ones who didn't develop well enough to be stars for the Cardinals, he would sell to somebody else for a lot of money or other players. And he managed to do very well in St. Louis. Beginning in 1926, the Cardinals won the pennant in 26, 28, 31, 34, uh, they won the World Series in 31 and 34, and St. Louis was, you know, fixed for uh, as a strong franchise for the first time it had ever been that way. But Mr. Ricky had further ideas than just that. Yes, he created the farm system, but he realized that the talent of players, the number of talented players, was not sufficient for every team to have enough of them. Where do I find more talented players? He said to himself. And I can see this, in, you know, in the, in the back of Mr. Ricky's brilliant brain. He was scheming as early as 1939 or 40 to tap the huge pool of American, African-American talent. Now, there never was an official rule barring African-American players from the major leagues. But there was all what's called what they called a gentleman's agreement between the owners that they wouldn't hire black players, and nobody ever thought of the idea that you know, they could go to the court over this and uh, have a gentleman's agreement thrown out because nobody really cared that much about the interests of black ball players. And there were some tremendous black players. The '30s were the year era of people like Josh Gibson who was probably one of the greatest hitters who ever lived, although he never got to play in the major leagues because of the colored bar. Satchel Paige was pitching in the, in the Negro Leagues. Satchel Paige came to the majors at the age of 40 and was Rookie of the Year and had something like four or five excellent seasons as a relief pitcher when he was only 40 years old, past his prime by 15 years. Uh, it was a crime. All this tremendous talent was out there and it wasn't being hired by the major leagues. Well, Ricky had a problem, though. Uh, St. Louis is in Missouri, which had been a slave state during the Civil War, and even today has very southern in a number of ways. It got away from being so southern for a while. But now, you notice, where's the University of Missouri playing these days? In the Southeast Conference. It went back, back to the Old South. Uh, politically, Missouri used to be a state that was so evenly divided that it was almost always on the winning side in every presidential election. Every time except once between 1860 and uh, the present, up until uh, 
about eight years ago, Missouri voted with the winning candidate in every presidential election. It was such a microcosm of the whole country. In the last 20 years or so, Missouri has become much more conservative and it's become much more Southern. And uh, the symbol, symbolic move of the University of Missouri from the Big 12 Conference to the Southeast Conference is instructive. Uh, which other school neighboring Missouri did Missouri's example follow? Anybody remember the first school to vote the Southwest uh, for the uh, Southeast Conference? Arkansas, which borders Missouri on the south. So Missouri and Arkansas have thrown in their lot with the Old South rather than with the Southwest or the Great Plains West. Anyway, St. Louis, being that kind of a state, and in that kind of a state, was a segregated city. St. Louis had racial segregation right down to Brown versus Board of Education and the Civil Rights Act. You could not have an integrated team playing in St. Louis in the 40s. What place could you expect to be able to break the color line with the least possible resistance and uh, least possible prejudice against you? Where but in Brooklyn? Brooklyn is a melting pot, always was, always will be. Brooklyn in those days was one-third Jewish, one-third Irish, one-third Italian, and a sprinkling of everybody else, including African Americans. If, and I think Bill Vec again points this out, if, Brooklyn, uh, if Jackie Robinson's the ideal man to break the color bar, Brooklyn was the ideal place to have him do it. And I have a little inside story here, because uh, when I was doing sports talk on KBC some years ago, uh, I ran into a New York sportscaster named Art Rust Jr. And Art told me a story. He was an uh, African-American sports writer and broadcaster. And in 1942, when Branch Rickey sold out of the Cardinals and came to Brooklyn, he came to Mr. Rickey for the question said, Mr. Ricky, when can we have integrated baseball? When are we going to break the color barrier? And Ricky looked at him and said, Mr. Rust, it's going to happen. Just be a little patient. What that means to me, suggests to me, is that Branch Ricky deliberately sold his interest in St. Louis where he couldn't integrate and bought into Brooklyn where he could integrate. And, of course, as uh, soon as World War II was over and as soon as Harry Truman, by executive order, desegregated the armed forces, Harry Truman was from Missouri, by the way, uh, <laughs> what did Branch Rickey do but sign Jackie Robinson to a contract with the Montreal Expos as top farm club? And, of course, Montreal didn't have the racial segregation problem that it, uh, America had. So Jackie was able to play for a year in Montreal, and then in 1947, Ricky brought Jackie Robinson to Brooklyn. And I think that was all planned. I, I have no doubt in my mind that Branch Ricky was looking forward to tapping the huge, brilliant pool of African-American players as early as 1940, when he uh, realized he couldn't do it in St. Louis. Now let's go back to some other things that happened during the Depression 30s. How do you get people to come to the ballpark? Well, you jazz up the, the hitting, for one thing. Jazz up the ball, for another thing. 
But there are a couple of other ways of doing it. In 1935, the Cincinnati Reds were owned by Larry McPhail, who was one of the geniuses in baseball history, one of the management geniuses. Larry McPhail was an incredible guy. Among other things, during World War II, he was in the Office of Strategic Services, the American Spy Agency, and he penetrated into Adolf Hitler's office, I believe, and stole one of Hitler's trinkets off his desk. <laughs> That's the kind of guy Larry McPhail was. Well, McPhail, in 1935, had a you know, a small market franchise in Cincinnati. The Reds had never been a particularly successful franchise. They did win that World Series in 1918, 1919, rather. Or did they? Did they really win it, or was it thrown to them? Um, did they only win it because the Sox players weren't trying, were trying to lose? And they hadn't won it since 1919. Well, McPhail needed to bring people to the park. And the first thing he did was to put lights on Crosley Field. There had not been night baseball in the major leagues before. There had been some minor league teams that had experimented with it, um, not, you know, not a very successful experiment, but all the major league games up until 1935 had all been played in daylight. And then Larry McPhail lit up the night, literally. Then... That wasn't all he did. He also took advantage of that newfangled thing called radio. Radio, commercial radio, began in the United States as late as 1920, when KDKA in Pittsburgh went on the air. And up until then, radio had not been a factor. There were games broadcast occasionally. KDKA experimented with it in Pittsburgh. But no team had gone on full-time, you know, putting on their games on radio, until Larry McPhail hired Red Barber, the famous Red Barber, uh, later for the years, the Dodgers announcer, uh, Vin Scully's mentor. And we have a, a, a living link to Red Barber and Larry McPhail through Vin. Vin, it was Red Barber's pupil. Oh, when Red was with the Dodgers, and Vin started with the Dodgers when he was just 20 years old. So the, the uh, continuity is perfect from the very first regular season, regular scheduled baseball broadcast that Larry McPhail put on with Red Barber in Cincinnati in 1935 to 2013 and now next year, 2014, with Finn Tully and the Dodgers. It's amazing. All right. So McPhail brought in number one night baseball and number two radio broadcasts. McPhail managed to uh, survive the impression in Cincinnati uh, with the aim of his two night, uh, night baseball and, uh, and radio. And he was looking for bigger fields to conquer. Bigger, you know, his frog ship wanted a bigger puddle. Where's the biggest puddle? New York City. But, of course, you couldn't touch the Yankees, uh, the princes, crown princes of baseball. You couldn't touch the Giants with their long and uh, brilliant tradition. But the Dodgers were sort of the poor relation franchise. First of all, they weren't in Manhattan. They were out in Brooklyn. And uh, well, they got their name Dodgers because the people in Manhattan 
thought of people in Brooklyn as trolley dodgers. They they were very sophisticated out of Brooklyn, and uh, they didn't have money for cars. They they were trolley dodgers. Well, Brooklyn was for sale, and Larry McPhail bought into the Brooklyn Ball Club and ran it. What is the first thing he did? What do you think was the first thing he did when he got to Brooklyn? He brought in night baseball, and he brought in Red Barber, and brought in uh, the broadcast in Brooklyn. And this was in 1938. He also hired a new manager. Larry McPhail was smart enough to see that Leo DeRocher, who had been a Yankee player for a while, and then been in the Cardinals, managed the Cardinals, uh, and was still with the Cardinals as a, as a part-time player, McPhail didn't want DeRocher as a player, but he saw that DeRocher had the makings of a tremendous manager. And so in 1938, he hired Leo DeRocher as a playing manager and then figured DeRocher would stop playing in a year or two and uh, he'd be the full-time manager of the Dodgers. And that's pretty much what happened. But before it happened, uh, <laughs> this just happens to be the uh, the case, the Brooklyn Dodgers' first night game ever played in June of 1938. 1938. Who were the opponents? Nobody but the Cincinnati Reds, Larry McPhail's former club. And I think McPhail probably planned it that way. Okay, who pitched for the Cincinnati Reds in that game? Well, Cincinnati had a young pitcher from New Jersey whose name was Johnny Vandermeer, and in his last previous start, he had pitched a no-hit game. And now he's starting the game, first game he's starting after his no-hitter in Brooklyn in the first night game ever played in Brooklyn. In the first night game played in New York, for that matter. All right, what does Vandermeer do? But pitches another, another no-hitter. And who did he strike out for the final out? Leo DeRocher. Larry McPhail uh, must have been feeling absolutely on top of the world. Everything he's doing is falling together, coming together. Uh, McPhail eventually sold, from, sold out uh, his Brooklyn interest to Ricky, I believe, and uh, was with the Yankees for a while before he quit baseball to join the OSS and go to Europe as an American spy. Uh, his son, um, I think it was, was it his son or his grandson, I think uh, Lee McPhail was his son, and Annie McPhail was his grandson. There have McPhail's running baseball teams uh, forever, since, since Lee McPhail started in Brooklyn, and, uh, in Cincinnati, rather, in 1935. So, um, night baseball... Broadcast radio, uh, the hitting surge of the, of the 30s, that's all tied together to the Depression and to the total economy and to the need to bring people into the ballpark. Well, this brings us up to World War II. I wanted to talk about a ball player who had a lot to do with World War II, although, of course, nobody knew it at the time. This is a ball player whose name was Morris Berg. His father was a pharmacist in Newark, New Jersey, and his father was a very uh, educated man. And his son, Mo, Morris or Mo, 
began playing baseball in the street at the age of four in Newark. His father disapproved of his playing baseball, and never once did he ever see his son play in a game. However, his son turned out to be a pretty decent player, good enough to make the major leagues for 15 years, and he also was a genius. You want to hear something about Mulberg? In high school, he learned Latin, Greek, and French. He went to Princeton and graduated magna cum laude from Princeton and adding Spanish, Italian, German, and Sanskrit. He also learned Russian. Then he went to Russia, not Russia, but he went to France, to the Sorbonne in Paris. And there, he picked up Japanese, Chinese, Korean, Urdu, Arabic, Portuguese, and Hungarian. And then he went to law school. The man spoke 15 languages fluently, and he also had uh, also spoke dialects. Uh, an absolutely brilliant guy, magna cum laude from Princeton, Columbia Law, uh, and here he is playing baseball. He wound up coming to the major leagues with Brooklyn for a short time in the 19 what was it 26 I think or 29. Anyway, uh, he was only there for a few few uh, months or whatever, and didn't, didn't complete a season there. And then he went over to the American League and became a catcher. He had started out as an infielder. He became a catcher and caught on in the American League for 15 years with five teams. Mm-hmm. Now, the story about, the, uh, about Mr. Berg was he was not the greatest hitter of all time. He did manage to have a lifetime average of about 250, which is, you know, respectable, not great. Uh, he never played in more than 76 games in a season, except once, and that was in his best season, 1929, when he hit 288 uh, in the American League. His lifetime average, 243. He had six lifetime home runs, 206 RBIs, and some genius of a uh, some big wit of a genius uh, commentator said, the guy speaks 15 languages, but he can't hit in any of them. <laughs> and he was good enough to play 15 years in the major leagues. Well, in 1934, Babe Ruth and Lou Gehrig, I mentioned I told you they, they went barnstorming in the offseason to make more money. Uh, they were such big names, Ruth particularly. Well, Ruth and Gehrig went on a tour of Japan in 1934. Japan had been baseball crazy ever since the uh, first beginnings of American um, penetration of Japan, which was in the 18, 19th century, I think 1840-something. Um, anyway, Japan was baseball crazy then, and of course Japan is baseball crazy today. Well, when Derrick and Ruth went to Japan in 1934, they took along a third-string catcher named Moberg. At that time, nobody knew why Moberg was on that team. In fact, I never knew it until I read a, read a recent article about this. Moberg was working as a spy for the U.S. government as early as 1934, when he was still playing Major League Baseball every year. In Tokyo, he went to a hospital called St. Luke's Hospital, which happened to be the tallest building 
in the capital of Japan. He dressed himself in a kimono, and he carried some flowers and told everybody he was taking them to the daughter of an American diplomat who was being treated in the St. Louis Hospital. He didn't deliver the flowers, however. What he did do was to go up to the roof of the hospital and take pictures and movies of everything he could see from this tallest building in Tokyo. The harbor, military installations, railroad tracks, anything that uh, would be of interest. And eight years later, in 1942, when General Jimmy Doolittle made his famous raid over Tokyo, he studied Moberg's films in planning that raid. Pictures that Moberg took in 1934 were used to bomb Japan in 1942. Wow. That wasn't the end of his career as a spy, either. In fact, he was had uh, many more... Uh, even more spectacular uh, results as a spy. In 1942, he was parachuted into Yugoslavia, and his job there was to assess the value of the war effort of two groups of the partisans, Mihalovic and the Serbians, and uh, Marshal Tito. And Moberg examined the the ground and... uh, discussed everything. Of course, he spoke Russian, so I imagine he didn't have too much trouble in Yugoslavia. And he reported back that Tito had the popular support. As a result, the Americans and the British ordered all-out support for Tito as Yugoslavian underground fighter rather than Mihalovic. He was 41 years old when he was parachuted into Yugoslavia. And uh, to be making your first parachute jump in wartime at the age of 41 had to have been quite a challenge. But that wasn't the last of Moberg yet either. In 1944, Berg was sent to Norway, which, of course, was occupied by the Nazis. And he met with members of the underground there and located a heavy water plant, part of the Nazis' attempt to build the atomic bomb. As a result, the Allies bombed the heavy water plant and set the German nuclear program back again. And still, Moberg wasn't finished as a spy. There was still the question of how far the Nazis had progressed in the race to build the first atomic bomb. If they were successful, they would win the war. So Berg was sent to Switzerland to contact the leading German physicist, Werner von Heisenberg, who was a Nobel Prize winner. He was lecturing in Switzerland, and Berg was sent to contact him there and determine how close the the Germans were to building the A-bomb. Berg slipped past the SS guards at the auditorium, posing as a Swiss graduate student. In his pocket, he carried a pill cyanide, and a pistol. If von Heisenberg indicated that the Nazis were close to building the weapon, Berg's orders were to shoot Heisenberg and then swallow the cyanide pill. You know, this, is, uh, this is not fun. You know, we're, we're, we've got serious business here. Mo sat in the front row and, of course, was fluent in German, listened and listened and listened and determined from Heisenberg's speech that von Heisenberg 
was really saying the Germans weren't close to building the, the mob. After the meeting, instead of shooting Heisenberg, he walked out, uh, walked him back to the hotel, <laughs> and then reported to uh, Churchill and Roosevelt that uh, the Nazis were not close to building the bomb, and that America had time to go ahead and win. And Roosevelt responded in a message to Berg: "Give me regards to the catcher." Quote unquote. <laughs> After the war. Oberg was awarded the Medal of Merit, America's highest honor for a civilian in wartime. But he couldn't accept it. Why? Because he would have had to tell how, uh, what it was he did that uh, justified his getting the medal. So he just refused to accept it because he didn't want to tell anybody about what he'd been doing. After he died, his sister accepted that medal. And today, it's in the Baseball Hall of Fame in Cooperstown, New York. Moberg is not in as a catcher, but he is in there as a spy. Well, that great Absolutely story. fascinating. Great Wow. And then after the war, he also continued with the uh, CIA, uh, traveling around with other agents. And uh, once he was caught in Russian-dominated Czechoslovakia, and a Soviet border guard said, who are you know, who are you in Russian, whatever. Uh, he says, oh, I'm, I'm on your side. You know, I'm from Russia. And he used his head. He had in his pocket a letter from the Texaco company. You know, uh, the gasoline, Texaco gasoline? Texaco's symbol was a red star. He <laughs> shows this to the Soviet border guard, and the guy says, oh, go ahead. <laughs> Fascinating, just absolutely fascinating and delightful stuff. So we brought us now up to uh, post-war America, and the, we're getting ready to break the uh, sound barrier, so to speak, breaking the color barrier, Jackie Robinson 47, and that's what we'll start with when we do the third part, whenever you want to do the third part. This is so fascinating. Ira, I have a, a question Shoeless Joe yeah. Jackson. Why, why was he shoeless? I mean, no, barefoot. I know what it means. Did he play ball barefooted or what? Shoeless Joe. I couldn't hear you, Bob. I'm trying to get slowly. Shoeless Joe Jackson. Did he play barefooted? Why was he called that? Oh, shoeless, that? So, shoeless Joe Jackson? Well, yeah. <laughs> the story is that in the minor leagues, one day he was playing and his feet hurt. His shoe didn't fit or something. So he took it off. And for one game, he played in the socks. But somebody, uh, a writer, saw this and called him Shoeless Joe. And, of course, the man stuck. Wow. And he didn't also, play in his stocking feet every day, just one game in the minors. Right. But <laughs> that was enough. <laughs> and also, it is said that the Cubs might have thrown 1918 World Series, or did they yes. have scandal uh, around them as well? The, Either the Cubs might have thrown it to the Red Sox, or the Red Sox might have thrown it to the Cubs. But now, I didn't talk about this. Actually, I have to mention that. In one of Bill Vick's books, it's called The Hustler's Handbook, he has a whole chapter devoted to the diary that was kept by the White Sox traveling secretary, the secretary of the team, whose name was Harry... I'll think of it in a minute. Anyway, Harry, I'll just call him Harry. Uh, and in Harry's uh, notes, he has, in his 1919 diary, 
a star named next to the name of a, one of the Cub players, and which he added in handwriting, fixer of the 1918 World Series. Oh, my God. And uh, Harry, Harry Grabener, that was his name, Harry Grabener. And uh, Harry was in a position to know because he was an executive with Chuck Comiskey. He was Charles Comiskey's right-hand man. No. Oh, I'm shocked. Not my Cubs. They wouldn't do that. But I guess they did. Ira, we want to thank, we want to thank you so very much, and we'll be in touch. I, I'm just looking forward to Part 3, and I thank you. Well, I'm looking forward to Part 3 also. In Part 3, I'm going to do something a little bit different. I'm going to finish the uh, period up to, you know, up to free agency, which is where baseball is now, uh, expansion and free agency. And then I want to tell some stories. Very I was good. going to tell stories tonight, but I told Mo, Mo Berg. That's a story. Wow. <laughs> He's wonderful. And I hope you'll discuss Kurt Flood, you know, on the Supreme Court and all that business. Kurt Flood. Okay. okay. Looking forward right. to talking with you and maybe in November, huh? Very good. We'll be in touch. Okay. Thank, Thank you. you. Okay, bye. Good night.